Bienvenido a otro podcast de la Iglesia C29 Granada. Esperamos que te inspire y te haga reflexionar. Hello, everyone. Um, this is now the seventh of these studies that we've been doing, and it was very much prompted by the fact of the pandemic and the economic close down, and then just the thought, well, what's it all going to be like when this is over? And particularly now as we see the, the lockdown easing and people being able to move around and get back to the various economic activities, in a way we're all wondering, well, just what is going to happen now? Is the economy just going to pick up the way it was? And again, is that actually what we want? And so we've been, we've been looking at the Bible um, and trying to understand something of the way in which God himself intended for an economy to work. And we're looking at this particularly in the Old Testament in the story of Israel. But we've also been looking at some New Testament passages as well, and we'll continue to do that. And in our last study, we began to look in some detail in, at the ways in which the economic system that God gave to his people worked. And we used the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, to illustrate two particular and distinct types of people that needed to be cared for in this economy. When Naomi and Ruth first arrived in Bethlehem, they had no resources at all. Happily, it was the time of the barley harvest, and Ruth was able to take advantage of a special provision for those who were foreigners, widows, or orphans. She could follow the men and the women who were doing the, the harvesting and pick up the stalks and the spare grain that had been left behind on the ground behind the women were tying up the sheaves. This was called gleaning. And it applied, yes, to this barley harvest, to the wheat harvest that came sometime later, and then also to the olive and the grape harvests as well. The foreigners, the widows, and the orphans made up this group of people who didn't have any land or any other way of supporting themselves and basically had no family to, to really support them. And in our discussion at the, at the end of the study, we saw that in an economy uh, that is putting a priority on people rather than money, the possibility of sacrificing greater efficiency and profit in order to make employment and work possible for more people was in fact a real possibility. Naomi also illustrates the second group of people because there was still some land that was in the inheritance of her dead husband, Elimelech. And in order to obtain some money with which she could support herself and Ruth, either by doing some training or trading or just buying the needs that, that, that they, they needed, she decided to sell that land. And what we then discovered was that Boaz, a close relative of Elimelech, 
bought the land in order to keep the land within the same extended family. He also married Ruth so that their first son should inherit the land that had belonged to Elimelech to keep the land in that particular line of the family or the clan. And both of these actions were part of a set of laws that God had given in order to ensure that no family should permanently lose the land that had originally been given to that family when the promised land had first been conquered. The lesson for today's economy is that we should try to maximize the control and responsibility that people have over the work that they do to earn their living. I'm going to send round the notes from um, last week's study this evening. Um, and at the end of that, I've actually expanded a little bit, developing some of the discussion um, that we had uh, at the end of last, last week's study, just to elaborate on some of these, these sorts, uh, sorts of ideas. So God made provision for the needs of both of these groups of people. And as we're going to see, the approach that he expects from his people is summed up in the words of Micah. And these are the words that we were all listening to on last Sunday evening in the sermon. And God says, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy? and to walk humbly with your God. God's looking for relationships that show justice and mercy. And that's why we're taking it as our title today, what do justice and mercy or what do justice and kindness look like in a welfare system? One of the things that God has a lot to say about is the issue of making loans and borrowing money. Obviously, everything in life has its hazards, and a farmer may have a poor crop or other expenses that leave him without what he needs for his farm and family. And God is quite clear in his law that his friends and family should be generous and help him out. The objectives are to both feed his family and, importantly, to allow him to keep working his farm. In Leviticus chapter 25, God says, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them, as you would a foreigner and a stranger, so that they can continue to live among you. Don't take interest or any profit for them from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. The reason so that they may continue to live among you and that passage is given twice. First, it's given as a reason for giving the, the person a loan. 
And second, it's the reason for not taking any interest on that loan. As we've already seen, God is concerned to maintain family solidarity and community. Before anyone needs to sell his land in order to buy some seed for sowing or to feed his family, his family, his extended family or neighbors should give him a loan so that he can continue farming the land. Security or collateral for the loan is considered appropriate, but has to be managed in a kind and considerate way. In Deuteronomy, God says, when you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, don't go into their house to grab what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, don't go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you, and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. To our modern ears, perhaps the forbidding of interest may sound strange. The payment of interest or loans has been the, the fundamental basis of our economy for several centuries. What I think may seem even more strange is the forgiveness of all loans every seven years. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, God says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time for cancelling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. Every seventh year was the Sabbath year. This was the year when the land was allowed to lie fallow without any, any cultivation. This was also the year when all debts to fellow Israelites were to be cancelled and forgotten. Of course, people were expected to pay back their loans, and failure to do so was considered theft. But whatever was still left of the loan in the seventh year had to be cancelled by the person who had loaned the money. I guess there are always risks in lending and borrowing money. In our economy, the greater risk is on the person who is borrowing the money. There's interest to pay, so you always have to pay back more than you borrowed. This is why so many people get trapped in credit card debt or in debts to payday loan sharks, the people who take advantage of people's debts when they get their, their paychecks on paydays. And this is all because of the, the very high rates of interest demanded. 
in Israel, we can see it was actually the other way around. It was the person who made the loan who carried the higher risk because every seven years he had to cancel any debts that were still outstanding. That's why this passage in Deuteronomy then continues and says, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. Quotes, the seventh year, the year for cancelling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hands to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted when the seventh year is approaching. We can understand the temptation. If you lend somebody and the next year is the, the Sabbath year, it's very possible that you may get very little of that loan back. If you are generous, God says, he will bless you. Again, we remind ourselves that all of this process was to reduce the risk that a farmer would have to sell some or all of his land. If he had his land, he could still work to pay off his debts. If he did not have his land, he would have to work for somebody else for a smaller income. And if he was not able to save up enough money to buy back his land, his family would have to wait until the next year of Jubilee, which came every 50 years before they could get the land back. God is a God of equity. He wants everyone to flourish and prosper. The key to that prosperity was not in hard-hearted commercial profit, from exploiting other people. It came through generosity and relationships. And God's laws, these ones that we're looking at, were all designed to create a process for showing that generosity. I suppose we shouldn't be in any way surprised to discover that Jesus fully endorsed this whole approach. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says quite simply, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. And then in Luke's version, it's spelled out a little bit more. Luke says, or Luke reports Jesus as saying, 
if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. That sounds like an even more demanding um, standard than we have in the Old Testament. So, the expectation was that, as far as possible, families should be responsible for helping their members when any troubles came along. If possible, loans should come from family members. If land had to be sold, it was the family kinsman redeemer who was expected to ensure that the land remained within the family. However, there was this other group of people who didn't have land or close family support. These were the foreigners, the widows and the orphans. And it was a very vulnerable group of people. They had no resources. They had no close family to provide for them or to advocate for them. And as a result, very frequently, and we see this from particularly from the prophets, the way that the prophets were talking about the way in which these this group of people, the foreigners, the widows and the orphans, were always being taken advantage of. And God uses very strong language to express his concern and support for these people. In Exodus, just after giving the, the Ten Commandments, we read, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Don't take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, and your children fatherless. That's tough words. And then again in Leviticus, he says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, don't mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. Remember, I am the Lord your God. And then finally in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, God says, Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. So, in a sense, doing a little bit of a recap, we can remind ourselves that God's first provision for this group was to ensure that there were effective opportunities for doing some work for those who were able to do it. And the example of Ruth is the one that we've already seen. And that was the opportunity to do the gleaning when the crops were being harvested. The barley, the wheat, 
the olive and the grape harvest were all involved. And then the second thing was to ensure that everyone, including foreigners, who was an, in an employee situation, and many people were day laborers, to make sure that they always got their wages in full and on time. The poor and foreigners were too easy to take advantage of because they had no family to advocate for them. Again, in Deuteronomy, God says, Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy. Whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns, pay them their wages each day before sunset, because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. So God created a system whereby the needs of these people could be met. One of the things that we need to keep reminding ourselves is that there was no separation between what we call the religious activities and the economic activities in, in the law that God gave his people. Each year, all the families had to bring a tenth part, a tithe of all of their produce to God. The tithes were just one part of the religious activities that God had prescribed for his people as ways for them to remember that they all had come, that, that all that they had had come from him. Most important amongst these religious activities were the three annual feasts that were held in Jerusalem. The first was the, the Feast of Passover, which celebrated the exodus from Egypt. The second feast was the Feast of Weeks, and it came seven weeks after the beginning of the barley harvest. This feast and the next one, the third one, were also celebrations of the first fruits of the harvests. So God says, count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. Deuteronomy then goes, 16 continues by just describing the third feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, and it describes it in this way. Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your festival, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. 
For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. At the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. I think there are two really important things to notice about these festivals. The first is that they were feasts and festivals. For the festivals of weeks and tabernacles, families were required to bring the best of each of their harvests to Jerusalem, not to be burnt as a sacrifice or given to God in some other way. No, they were to be cooked and eaten as a feast over several days by the family that brought them. They were feasts to be enjoyed. They were feasts to celebrate the fact that God had provided generously for them. The second point is that they were to recognize God's generosity by being generous themselves. Did you notice that to each of these feasts, it wasn't just the farmer and his family who were to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. It was also your male and female servants and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who lived in your towns. In other words, the landowning farmers in a town had the responsibility to make sure that everyone, including the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows, were all brought to Jerusalem to share in the feast. Well, today there may still be a few rural farming communities where as part of the annual harvest festival, everyone in the community gets together for a shared uh, lunch after the harvest festival service in the parish church, but not very many of them. In many city churches, instead of the feast, people bring food to the service and afterwards it's distributed to poor people or it's given to the local food bank. It's obviously not quite the same as actually everybody sitting down together, rich and poor alike, to give thanks and celebrate for what God has provided for them. So there were these, there were these three annual feasts that everybody needed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the harvests, and what God had done for them. But then there was the system of tithes. You may remember from our last study that the land was divided up between the tribes of Israel and all of them except one. That was the tribe of Levi because the Levites were the priests and the teachers of the law. They were not given any land, but they were given houses places to build their houses in all of the towns and the cities. And outside, they were all given a certain amount of land for grazing their sheep. The food for the Levites came from the tithes that all of the families had to bring to the temple. And again, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, we, we have the description 
of what actually God expected. And he said, be sure to set, set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. So that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But as a practical consideration, he goes on, if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe, because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. He's talking about Jerusalem eventually. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And don't neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Have you noticed that the whole point of the tithes was to have a, another feast? Or that's the way it seemed. It's not clear if the first fruits of the harvests that were eaten at the, at the, the feasts of, um, of weeks and tabernacle were part of the tithe or a separate offering. At least some of the tithe was supposed to be eaten in Jerusalem as a thanksgiving meal in the same way as for those other feasts. There's no mention of an additional feast of tithes for which people needed to go to Jerusalem. Therefore, it's quite possible, it seems to me, that the two feasts of the first fruits may well have been part of the tithes. It's also not clear to me whether all the tithe was eaten in the one week that they were there or if there was some left over. I suspect that there was food left over because it was unlikely that they were going to eat a tenth of all of their produce in one week. So I suspect there was food left over and that it was left for the priests and the Levites in Jerusalem or maybe some of it in the towns from which they had, had come. In any case, in this passage of scripture, God emphasizes, do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of land of their own. But then the passage goes on to say, at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So every third year, the whole tithe <clears throat> was kept in the towns where people lived 
in order that it supply the needs of the Levites, but also the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who lived in that town. Making provision for the Levites, the foreigners, the fathers, fatherless, and the widows was not considered an option. It was an obligation. So that that's the end of the of what I want to say to to start off this time. We've we've thought about um, in these last two studies, we've seen that the priority of the Old Testament old econ, Old Testament economic system was to maximize people's opportunity for productive work, and this was in order that they would have control and responsibility for the livelihood of their families. And today we saw that there was provision for interest-free loans and also a system of tithing to provide gifts of food or money for those who were unable to help themselves. And I, I, I wonder if we could, we could maybe just think, think a little bit about, about this. There, there may be some comments and, and, and or questions that somebody wants to bring up about the particulars of the loans and the tithing um, that, that we've talked about today. I'm actually hoping that in the next couple of studies, um, we should actually think a little bit more particularly about how Christian individuals and families should think about the issues of lifestyle and standard of living, of happiness, prosperity, and contentment, and also the roles of credit and debt in our finances of ourselves as individuals and families. And then the, the, the time after that, I want us to discuss a little bit more what we could and should be doing as, as the local church to create more and better work, to care for those who don't have any other resources to support the church mission and about the role of tithing and other gifts in, in these. But maybe today, just we can, we can think a little bit more about our, our, our current situation in today's economy and ask ourselves if our current economy actually provides the same incentives as the Old, Intest Old Testament economy did. What are the main incentives for corporations and businesses today? Is it shareholder profit? Or is it supporting employment and good wages and decent benefits? If, if, if God's concern was that everybody, as many people, should have the opportunity of work, we have to ask ourselves to, today, how easy is it for someone to start a business? Or how easy is it for someone to retrain and get new skills for a new job? And then does the welfare system that exists, does it actually encourage people to find new employment and jobs? Or 
should it do something other than simply provide unemployment payment? So what about the incentives today in our economy? What, what, do, what do people think? Esther, link, link us all up so that, so that we can all talk together. What do people think? Marila, you've got you've you've got something burning to say. I was just thinking about this year uh, of forgiveness, right? Forgiving that it's um, it's tricky because I think you have to forgive, but wisely. Otherwise people can take advantage of you and maybe if it was my case I would have to ask knowing that next year it would be the seventh year so I would have asked all the money in year number six <laughs> I don't know I don't understand this concept of who were the ones that were forgiving and um, I don't know if it's that just because a lot of people even nowadays take a lot of uh, advantage. Okay, good. What do others think about that? I, this, is, this, is, uh, this, is, this was an incredibly important part of the Old Testament law, but it's, yeah, is, is it imaginable in, to, in today's economy? And is it something that we should do simply as a personal level or should this be happening on a on a sort of a national or and international level? Just to add, always like the Jews are known for the ones as um, how I know how to say they, they they are known for this word that they keep the money and they are good bankers, and this is one of the things they were expelled from here. Yeah, sureros. I I don't know the word. Yeah, mm -hmm. because they knew how to make much more money, so it could be wise. But at the same time, I don't know how or to whom to forgive. Maybe to the real poor, because otherwise other ones will say, okay, I pay next year, I pay next year, knowing that in the seventh year, it's forgiven. What do others think about this? You've got a glint in your eye, Adriana. Well, I don't know if it, if it could be uh, the same way. That, uh, yeah, currently, as Marilla says, maybe... People can take advantage, so I'm going. I, I'm, I know that next year uh, all my debt is going to be forgiven, so I just take advantage and I, I just get loans what I need and everything. So I don't know. I think that it depends on the context, and and of the and of the culture. I think that of the culture, for example, I don't. I cannot imagine that in Colombian culture. <laughs> No, and never. Uh, everybody would be crazy taking advantage of this situation. Uh, it's very sad, I have to say, but it's very sad. It's like, um, it would be like that. And I was thinking of, in, about, in, about an example that could, could explain this currently. I don't know if this, is, this applies, but some, some companies, for example... Well, some, some big companies, for example, have these things to, to pay less taxes. They give money to nonprofit organizations, you know, like they donate some money for foundations. Uh, so they are trying to benefit other people, maybe poor children or people who have 
different needs and they give some money or services or some some stuff and but by exchange they they, they can save money in their taxes. their taxes yeah but are those loans or are those gifts oh no i think that they are they are so i think they're converted in gifts yeah they're gifts they're gifts yeah gifts yeah take a step back because I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the Old Testament um, culture and, and, and the kind of world that we in the Western world particularly live um, it was the family land and the family property and the importance of keeping things in the family um, I think in many of the, the current um, Western cultures we've lost that concept of of property within the family now you know there are obviously some 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 exceptions and there are some big family firms um that that i mean i've i've become familiar with here in spain i don't the el corte inglés i understand it's still family for mercadona and so forth but but i think it's this issue of of the the forgiveness was you know, this was this the primary purpose of of, uh, of these loans. First, first of all, was to the family, the family members, and so maybe this issue of what well, if they didn't pay back, um, there would have been enough of sort of um, sort of uh, criticism among the family members that you borrowed uh, borrowed money or so as so loaned you this money. And you you never intended to pay it back because this is this is how you handle it. Um, just a thought. No, I think I think that's important, and I th- and I think it it is important to emphasise that the purpose of those those loans was basically to keep family family or or, or people nearby actually still able to carry on and doing their 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 work and use their land and if possible to avoid having to sell their land so that they, they still kept what they had in order to produce the food that everybody needed. So that, 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 making a making a profit and making everybody richer and richer, which is right. Now right. I can't speak for the firms that I mentioned because I don't know know uh, that but but certainly the profit motive I think is very much what Yeah. yeah. I I I was thinking uh, about what Rita Lisa was saying, uh, actually, I know some some families. It depends on the family, as you were saying, and the context. For example, I, I know some people that the, the parents are concerned about the future of the children, so they try to uh, lend them money uh, for a business, not give them not not give them money just like the cash, but invest in the money in a business that they can manage. Yeah, for example, I don't know, just I'm going to to give you these loans so you can have the your own business and the rest of the business, uh, you know, the depends of you, the develop the development of the business depends of you. I don't know if this figure could work, um, but I know some cases that, that parents have done that. So it's it's like they can be sure that they they, they did everything they could to help their children and it depends the rest depends on them what they do with the money and this 
small business that they give them. Thank you, Adriana, because I think that that creates a little bit of a of of, of the contrast. Um, in the Old Testament, the loans were actually primarily to help people out of a bad bad situation, and that's different from using using some money to invest in, as it were, in new business. Um, and what you're describing, Adriana, I think is, is, is much more like that. Um, and I think what, 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 what would be interesting to, to know is that, in, or to think about is in that situation, you've got family either giving money or loaning money to their children to create a business opportunity. Um, I wonder whether they were charging them interest or I wonder whether they were actually giving them money as, if you will, equity, because the parents were committing themselves as part of the new business to share in the costs and the, the, the benefits of the business. All that is very different from the, the much broader situation in our economy where people are loaning and borrowing money at interest, with interest. Um, a lot of the time for, I mean, certainly most of us as individuals or families, a lot of that time it's, it's for consumption. And that's why we see the credit card um, as a, as, as a as a potential benefit, but also a potential enemy, as opposed to the debit card, where it's just a, a way of, of, of paying and, and transferring the money straight away. Um, but the, the, the whole loaning money with interest, it is absolutely fundamental to the whole functioning of our economy these days. And um, while it creates a lot of a, a lot of business, it also creates a lot of the problems in, in, in our economy. Um, but really just coming back to, um, to the point that Marilla brought up at first, it's a very, a very personal thing. If we loan somebody money, do we expect to get it back? Do we expect to forgive them? after seven years or at any time and what did what did what did jesus actually say about this as a if you will as a commentary on that i i think from um experience when we're talking about loans you know between people um from experience i would say you should never loan something to someone um, if you couldn't manage, if you didn't get it back. I think that's a, a general life principle that when and you loan something... You should never loan what? You should never loan money or something to someone if you couldn't manage, if you didn't get it back. Ah, okay. I think you always have to expect right. that there's a risk that what you loan to someone, you don't get back. Yeah, um, yeah. And I guess the context, when, when what you were saying, Marilla, about, um, yes, if you had to forgive loans every seven years, um, people could take advantage. 
I guess in the Bible that they're talking very much about personal loans between people. Whereas in our society, we have loans for everything. I mean, you, you buy you buy a, a house or an apartment with a with a loan. That would be great if after seven years they cancelled it and it was yours. But <laughs> but that doesn't happen. And you know, there's loans for everything for buying for buying a TV, for buying a kitchen, um, credit cards. That you know, it's big corporations who are loaning money and banks. Whereas in the Bible, it was very much between people, between family members, or between members of a of a community. So I guess there was that sort of um, peer pressure as well for people not to misuse the system. But also, I guess it made sure that people didn't, when they lent something, they were also aware that they might not get it back, which um, is probably a good principle nowadays as well. Thanks, Julia. I think I, I think that's really, really superb. And, and, and in fact, I, th I think what you're saying is actually it captures the intention of what was the purpose of the loan that's described in, in the Old Testament. The loan was to somebody who was a farmer to make sure that he could remain viable as a farmer. In other words, the, ex the, the loan was being given to him. Maybe it was so that he could buy some extra seed for planting that the, the next crop because he didn't have enough money. So the loan was given to create the opportunity for the farmer to produce a harvest in order that he would then be able to pay it back. Now, yeah. obviously, the, 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 the law goes on and recognizes the, the possibility that that's not always going to happen. But I think, Juliet, what you're saying is that you, you, lay, you loan money to somebody in the expectation that that loan is going to help them to be in a position to actually make more money and be able to pay you back. If they are wise, yes. But if they take advantage, no. It's like today, a lot of people, it's like, I think it's kind of capitalism. A lot of people can, can take advantage of the paro, 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 and why to work if the government is going to give me this money? And I don't know. I And I think something good can get corrupted because people get advantage of good things. Okay, but 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 then you you touch on the on the other side of the whole thing that we've talked about this evening and, and and that is that there was the tithing process which created a store of food and provision in the in the town or the or, or, or the village but which could which could which could be used for supporting people who didn't have any means of producing food or, or, or getting earning a living for themselves that wasn't a loan that was that was a gift and if you will that's a little bit like the modern day welfare system mm -hmm. and and you're right marila one of the problems about the current welfare system is that yeah it, it it's not necessarily an an incentive to go back to work well 
okay we, i i think we've we've started on some good things here and over the next two two sessions i think we're going to link up with with these sorts of issues on on an individual or family level and also think about what we do as as a community of faith in the middle of all this recognizing that the economy the broader economy in which we we find ourselves these days is not one that really is in keeping with the basic priorities and values that that god gives us in in the bible modern day economy is puts a priority on money over people and so corporations and businesses they get lots of they get lots of profits and their shareholders are very happy and in the meantime you've got you've got a, a growing problem of unemployment which the government then needs to tax the corporations and the people who have money in order to give more and more welfare to these people and somehow that's that's the opposite of what we should be aiming for we should be aiming for an economy that actually puts a greater emphasis on getting as many people employed with a decent wage and benefits as possible so that there aren't lots of people needing welfare because welfare doesn't really give the right incentives to get back to work and therefore there aren't all these huge taxes which are necessary on corporations and so it actually allows if we were to to change that orientation towards maximizing employment and the, the human aspect of things it would actually create a much healthier um economy so that's the sort of thing which or within which uh, i hope we can explore some other things as individuals and families and then as as a church community exploring what particularly the new testament also teaches about teaches us about these things so so one more more thought in there that was the mal over as Juliet was saying a lot of the loans are consumption um but there are also loans for people to to get an education and in in different economies different countries the cost of a uh, a head education whether it's at lower levels or particularly university is very different and the funding of that you know who who is it who pays for it and having lived in the US for many years I mean, there are there are students who have huge loans um on their shoulders when they graduate um and then if they don't find the jobs in the economy how are they going to pay those back so just another another thought into the mix right good thank you and and we we think about this links up actually with, with directly with a point that Esther was making last week that actually as an equivalent to the land we have to think about skills and qualifications and things of that sort today um as in a sense the the basis uh, of 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 work and jobs good okay we're going to have a chance to follow up these things on uh, on subsequent sessions and i i look forward to to doing that
So for the moment, let's just close with, uh, with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is so clear about your priorities and your values for an economy and that you want us all to be able to maximize our opportunities for being self-sufficient as, as individuals and as families. Um, and we realize that our economy today is not necessarily the one that most encourages or helps in, in, in the, that priority or value. And so we just pray that you will help us um, as we reflect on today and go through the next sessions, how it is that as individuals, families, and as a community of faith, we can do things in order to bring our lives closer to that priority and those values that you've set for us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Gracias por escucharnos. Te invitamos a visitar nuestra web c29granada.es y a conectar con nosotros en nuestras redes sociales arroba c29granada.